I'm David Brent Johnson, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Gary Trudeau, the creator of the Pulitzer Prize-winning comic strip Doonesbury, which appears in over 1,100 daily and Sunday newspapers worldwide. In addition to his comic strip work, Trudeau has worked in television and theater, including writing and co-directing a Doonesbury special, writing the book and lyrics for the Broadway musical Doonesbury, the off-Broadway musical Rapmaster Ronnie, and HBO's critically acclaimed Tanner 88 and the sequel series Tanner on Tanner for the Sundance Channel. Trudeau has also been a columnist for the New York Times op-ed page and a contributing essayist for Time magazine. A graduate of Yale, he's also received honorary degrees from 30 other universities and colleges and has been inducted as a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's also received numerous awards for his work about wounded soldiers and veteran issues. In 2010, he published 40, a Doonesbury retrospective, a 695-page, 10-pound survey of the strip's history. Mr. Trudeau is visiting Indiana University as a lecturer for the College of Arts and Sciences Themester of Making War, Making Peace. Gary, thank you for being here today. Oh. Oh, my great pleasure. So what sorts of childhood and adolescent experiences do you think prepared you to become a cartoonist? Well, the usual character-building stuff. I went to an American high school, and um, I was uh, unusually small in stature, and I was in an all-male environment, and uh, it wasn't pretty. And, uh, I mean, I now look back on it, and I don't think you can really separate adolescence from where you spend it, so I certainly don't blame the school. Um, it just it just was a one of those times where you look at something happening bad in your life and you hold on to it and then um, hopefully that builds empathy over time. I think probably the when when the social scientists sort out what my generation has done with their children, they're go- <laughs> they're going to look at people like me who maybe overreacted in their parenting style and uh, tried to solve problems and, and mediate and uh, didn't build the same kind of self reliance and resiliency that. Uh, uh, my school built in me. Did you draw cartoons when you were in high school at all of your friends or of other people? I did, and it did earn me some some measure of of, of respect. Um, my junior year in high school, I started uh, drawing a uh, a strip that was that was put up on the bulletin board in the school in the school dining room, and developed a bit of a following to the point where people started stealing them. That was the first sort of feedback I got for cartooning. Yeah, when did you first realize that cartooning and drawing and and later graphic design too were ways in which you might be able to make a living? Well, when I was in college, I was working towards uh, a degree in, in in graphic design, and that had been my career path. I started doing the strip in my junior year, the strip that became Doonesbury. It was called Bull Tales, and it was essentially a sports strip. It was built around the the exploits of a of a, of a local hero, a charismatic quarterback by the name of Brian Dowling. And uh, I was about six weeks into it when um, a fledgling syndicate contacted me and asked me if I, if I wanted a career in that world. And so I didn't have a particularly long dues-paying period. I slid right into that job upon graduating. And uh, 41 years later, I'm, I'm, I'm still at it. It's not a story that my children enjoy. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't involve the kind of preparation that uh, uh, most most careers seem to demand. Uh, I was I was really winging it. I was making it up uh, as I was going along in prime time. I was on the comics page before I'd really developed those uh, the, the skills that are normally associated with the craft. <laughs> 
Now, you were at Yale at the end of the 1960s, the beginning of the 1970s. Very interesting time to be in college, I'm sure. And, and some of the people at Yale around the same time or several years ahead of you included John Kerry, uh, George W. Bush, Joe Lieberman, and Howard Dean. Uh, did you ever get the sense back then that you were walking among so much uh, potential presidential timber? <laughs> no. I, I knew two of them. Howard was was actually a, a boyhood friend. Um, I didn't see him so much when I was at Yale, but we reconnected uh, after he became governor. Um, and it was just like picking up you know, with a boyhood friend. It's that, that wonderful thing where, where all the years just evaporate. George W. Bush I have, I have not seen since the, since the early 80s when he was – he and his father were uh, approached me at a at a function that uh, NBC was having for uh, for some of uh, their newscasters, including my wife. And there was a bit of a charm offensive, uh, which was the way the Bushes usually handled things, because I had already been taking after the old man. Uh, it didn't go well, and uh, I haven't really spoken to either of them since. Bush did make an impact on me when I was an undergraduate. Um, hit, um, George W. Bush. He was a year uh, ahead of me. And it was a very odd time in turn, culturally at, at, at Yale in that there was a clear uh, demarcation between almost a generational gap between uh, his year. Actually, he was 68 he graduated and I graduated 70. And there was a real gulf. He was very much old school and we were the, 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 the new kids, the, the new generation uh, who, were, who were brought into Yale more or less uh, along very different criteria. The school was in the middle of democratizing its admissions policies. It wasn't so much uh, legacies. Uh, they flipped uh, the ratio of public school, private school kids in two years from 60, 40 to 40, 60. And, and it, so all sorts of people were showing up at Yale <laughs> that people like George W. Bush weren't, weren't used to encountering. And so he saw all the hippies of my class and uh, really didn't have much patience for us and really thought we were ruining the institution. How much were you involved in the anti-war and other student activist movements of the time while you were at Yale? I would say it was typical. I didn't get arrested, but I, but I showed up at uh, at most of the of the activities. I was uh, very self conscious about that. I, I I felt myself an observer. Um, I couldn't really lock into the flow of it, the chants and the and the just over the over the top. Uh, anti-war demonstrations, uh, I but I was utterly fascinated by it, and, and fascinated that that was what was happening to my generation, and so I that's when I I dropped into this role of observer. Well, some of your earliest strips actually kind of poke a lot of fun at those movements. Uh, I'm thinking of one in which Mark Slackmeyer is trying to contain an out of control SDS rally, and he he says, "Brothers, sisters, we must unite and have a common goal." To which somebody calls out, "Kill the moderator!" <laughs> and as everybody follows that cry and begins to throw things at the lectern, he crouches down behind the lectern and thinks to himself, "That wasn't quite what I had in mind." Yeah, wasn't that wasn't exactly what happened? <laughs> I, I I guess there was some of some of me in that strip. Uh, thanks for bringing it up. I have no recollection of it whatsoever. <laughs> this is this is one of the scary things about accumulating this much this much work. I've done about 13,000 strips and they're always done a, a, at a dead run. So they don't really imprint on the short-term memory. Uh, you can't just go, oh, <laughs> yes, that one that I wrote in 1970. Yeah. Remember it quite well. No, no. I had to eat that day. It was a bit, you mentioned the, 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 the retrospective that came out last year and, and uh, to, to, to put that together, I had to assemble uh, notebooks of every year. The 40, there were 40 fat notebooks against the wall in my studio and uh, it, it was a revelation um, 
there was a lot of work that never made it into the books that I edited out or that I just, as I say, I was doing uh, so quickly and moving on to something else that it, that it just didn't get locked in. What's the origin of the name Doonesbury? There was a, a, a phrase when I was in high school uh, or word, uh, Dune, which, which meant I guess the, the, the closest equivalency would be clueless. And the Dune was somebody who really uh, didn't know what was going on around him, had a kind of innocence about him, but didn't also have any meaning in him. And that was, that was critical. So the Dune was, was, was beloved. He wasn't respected, but he was, but he was beloved as being a sort of benign presence. So that was the first half of the word. And, and the second came from a, um, a roommate of mine in college named Pillsbury, for which the Dune was, was his nickname. Um, and so I combined the two pieces of, of word into into uh, a character that, in some respects, um, was modeled after this guy Charlie, Charlie Pillsbury, but um, departed pretty quickly from him as he took on his own fictional persona. How does the real life Charlie feel about the the character? He seems quite delighted by it. Um, he ran for public office in in Connecticut and uh, actually used that. Uh, you know, he used it as, as part of his biography. So I don't think he, he thought it was to his disadvantage. It's not baggage for him. No, no. It doesn't seem to be. Who and what were the key early influences on the strip? I mean, what in your mind were the precedents for it? What, what helped shape it? Well, I, I think the, you know, the, it, it was very much a repertorial experience for me. I was sort of just paying attention. I was being paid to pay attention. And so everything that was, that was uh, flowing through the culture at that point, there were such uh, astonishing things happening in music and in literature and in nonfiction. Um, there was a, a, a style of writing called the New Journalism that was uh, epitomized by people like Tom Wolfe and Gates Elise and conspicuously Hunter Thompson, where a subjective uh, point of view was was making its way into the the objective world. And um, much of that writing was autobiographical. And so I kind of turned that inside out. I started with real events. I mean, I started with these characters and then I bounced them off real events. Um, a very important book to me at that time was was Ragtime. And ragtime was was historical fiction. Historical fiction had been done before, but no one had done it so so masterfully as Doctorow did in in taking historic figures and making them come alive um, in a fictional context. And so I felt pretty much free to take public figures and and have them do what you know what I thought would create insight about about how they were behaving. That's interesting because we rarely, if ever, actually see visual depictions of presidents and other famous political figures in Doonesbury cartoons. Either we, we simply see their voices emanating from Congress or the White House or they're depicted as symbols. Uh, Dan Quayle is a feather. Bill Clinton is a waffle. George W. Bush is an asterisk. What led you to hit upon that strategy and, and why do you think it's been so effective? Because I, I do think it's an effective strategy. Well, they're two very different strategies. The, the offstage voice was uh, not, as people suspected, a reluctance to, to draw caricature. It's just that as I drew caricature, and there were a few uh, that people have largely forgotten. Kissinger appeared and there, there, there were uh, – a few other instances of that. But I found it limiting. It, it then became possible to say that is just a cartoon of somebody. We don't need to take it seriously. I wanted people to focus on the content of what they were actually saying and what it revealed about them. 
And so I, I, I moved into that strategy of, of, of offstage voices. And then George Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush became president. And there was something about his empty suit quality that just the absence of, of a person seemed important to draw. So I drew him as a point of light. And of course, he was famous for his Thousand Points of Light, his, his program to promote nonprofits. And uh, so I drew him as this point of life. And then, and then, you know, God bless him, he picked Don, Dan Quayle as his vice president. And I thought, well, just one step over, it would be a feather, you know, still insubstantial. With Bush, I meant more that he was amorphous and he was a shapeshifter. And, but with, but with uh, Dan Quayle, literally, there was, there was very little there. He was light, you know, and he was, he was a feather. And then other icons just kind of appeared thereafter, Newt Gingrich being the, the bomb with the lit fuse and Clinton being a waffle. And that kind of ran its course, I think. Um, I just lost interest in it as a conceptual idea during, during uh, George Bush's administration, George W. Bush's administration. I depicted him as a, as a Roman centurion helmet. And the point of light that he had been, uh, that he'd inherited from his father, turned into an asterisk to remind everyone of how he became uh, president in a contested election. The helmet falls apart over the course of his eight years. And it was hard slowing that down. I didn't know whether he'd be a four-year president or an eight-year. I suspected he'd be eight years. And so I had the helmet gradually fall apart. And to the end, it's just a little tuft of feather and a few bolts. And there's, there's, there wasn't much left to it. So once it, it, it decomposed, that combined with the difficulty of finding just the right icon for, for Obama. There were many, many suggestions that came in over the transom. But I just couldn't find something that that seemed to embody or <laughs> encapsulate him. So I, I just went back to the, to the offstage voices. What were some of the comic strip precedents for Doonesbury? What were some strips maybe that you read or, or uh, graphic fiction types of things that you read in the 60s that, that helped shape the strip when you began to do it? Well, everybody read Peanuts, of course. Uh, Peanuts was enormously popular in the 60s and we would quote it to one another and, and it was it was something that uh, seemed special and different. But in, in terms of, of, of where I went specifically – um, I would say that uh, Jules Pfeiffer work was was the most impactful. I discovered him through his plays first, um, and the skits that were that I that I had seen in high school that had been um, made from his cartoons, and then from that I I discovered his cartoons. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. He's the drawing is really stripped stripped back, and and uh, it's very sparse, and and uh, the line is is vibrant, but. But there's so little visual information here, and that forces the the reader to think about the ideas, to think about the dialogue. And I thought that well, that's a that's a that's that's a very interesting idea. To it, it gives me a way in to to deal with things that that move me, you know, that that concern me, and that and 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 a way to move readers to thought and judgment about topical material. So. I uh, basically uh, mimicked what I was seeing in Pfeiffer in the early years. And then, of course, you always, you know you find your own style over time. In what ways was Doonesbury unique and groundbreaking uh, as a comic strip when it first began to be syndicated in the early 1970s? Well, again, just the subject matter that that I was uh, writing about um, 
the, the, the salient concerns of my generation, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and politics, none of these things had ever been in, in comics uh, except for Pogo. Pogo and Little Abner would deal with these subjects, but, but more metaphorically, the names were always made up. They were always – there was always a safe distance between the comic and reality. I really wanted to, to uh, report on what I was, was seeing around me. And, and at that time, we, we had everyone's attention. The, the youth culture you – know, my generation pretty much hijacked the culture <laughs> – uh, during those years in the early 70s. And so it was, a, it was a good time to be writing about those things. And that coincided with editors' needs to uh, bring in young readers. They were losing young readers. Um, and and they, they needed to give them reasons to discover newspapers. And, and this was one of them. You, you did deal with, uh, as you said, a lot of topics that were considered provocative or taboo for the comic pages, uh, recreational drug use, the Vietnam War, feminism. But I think a lot of people may not realize that you also introduced Andy Lippincott, a, a gay character, into the strip in 1976, which just seems incredibly far ahead of the curve now. I mean, there certainly was an emerging gay rights movement in the 1970s, but uh, you know that must have been a pretty provocative uh, uh, thing to do at that point in time. What was the impetus for in- introducing him, and, and what sort of initial response? Well, it was it was early, and the language of of, of the gay rights movement was. Uh, not commonly known. In fact, one of the the, the earliest uh, uh, line in the strip, where his sexual identity is revealed, he tells Joni he's he's gay, and 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 Joni replies, "I don't, you know, I don't really see the problem. I'm cheerful too, because it, a large part of my readership would not necessarily have known what what, what gay means, or or they were just learning what gay mean, gay meant. I don't know." Why I got into it so so early, it 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 turned out to be important because there were gay related issues that emerged very shortly thereafter the AIDS epidemic hit in San Francisco in the late seventies and early eighties. I put Andy uh, uh, front and center with that, and uh, that's that was a long story storyline while he 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 dealt with life as a, as as an AIDS victim. And it, it deepened his friendship with with Joni, and that's what you always go for. Is you don't want to just stick these subjects in just for the sake of sticking them in. You want you want them to seem real, and you want to integrate them into the lives of the characters. And so Joni becomes his uh, evolves from a potential girlfriend, which was obviously hopeless, into a uh, a close friend, and she is the one who who helps him make his 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 exit. It's very poignant. He dies listening to the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, which he's very excited about. It's just been, re- you know, issued on CD. Well, it was a time in the in the eighties when when real um, uh, music lovers became very excited each time a a beloved album made the jump from from vinyl to digital, because you could hear the the intentionality of the music in ways you couldn't hear in the you know the more uh, degraded versions that then ended up on vinyl. And so th- there was a certain uh, segment of the music buying public that just breathlessly waited for for every uh, reissue in, in digital. And uh, Andy waits for Pet Sounds. This is a, a very important album to him. And it was important, of course, to, to my general generation generally. It was a, a big break from the surf music that, that Brian Wilson had been writing up until then. And um, it was also the album that the, that the Beatles, particularly Paul McCartney, pointed to as as being incredibly influential in in, in prior to their 
releasing their great concept album, uh, the Sgt. Pepper. So I wanted to celebrate it because I, as as a fan, was excited about it. Now it turned out that that Brian Wilson, you know, is a comics reader, and and he he came upon it, and um, he he reached out and and said, well, you know, I live out here in, in California where this. This this rolling Holocaust is happening that seems so unstoppable. Is there any way that I can uh, help? And I said, well, um, I'm doing a benefit out in San Francisco for the AIDS Quilt Project, which at that time was uh, a major project that was being done in a variety of cities. People were putting together squares uh, to honor the various people who had died of AIDS. And he said, yeah, I'd be interested in that. So so we went out and we did a benefit together out in San Francisco. And, and uh, I met one of my boyhood heroes, and Brian Wilson, and he, he did a benefit concert for us. And and uh, and you, you've brought along some music today that was written and recorded by Brian Wilson, one of his most famous songs, uh, The uh, Good Vibrations. What is it about this particular piece of music that made you uh, choose to bring it today? Well, Good Vibrations was, was written during the, the, the Pet Sound sessions. And um, Pet Sounds was, was, of course, Wilson's masterpiece. In fact, the rest of the Beach Boys, when, while he was blocking it out, what he wanted to accomplish in that album, the rest of them were on tour. And by then, he had become quite uh, racked with stage fright and really didn't like touring anymore. And so he stayed home and wrote all this, this magnificent music. And then when they got back, much of it had already been accomplished in the studio. But uh, Good Vibrations was uh, in a whole class by itself. It was um, – I think it was It was described at the time as a pocket symphony. It was his first attempt at creating modular music in, in creating – laying down a certain set of tracks then then uh, uh, doing other tracks at varying tempos and and, and fitting them together using – and then and re, reimagining them with different instruments and then constantly mixing and matching and overlaying. And they spent – I've heard different versions but is from anywhere from 50000 to 100000 which – now would be a half a million dollars on a single track. Uh, it was recorded in four studios, 17 different sessions. I mean, it's it was he was a perfectionist, and but it all paid off in this 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 pop masterpiece that uh, I think most people agree, you know, has been unequaled by not only the Beach Boys but by most other musicians as well. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear. And the way the sunlight plays upon her head I hear the sound of a gentle On the wind that lifts her perfume through the air I'm picking up good vibrations She's giving me the excitations I'm backing up We've been listening to the Beach Boys performing Good Vibrations, a song brought along today by our guest, Gary Trudeau. Uh, we were just talking about uh, Andy Lippincott, uh, the gay character you introduced in the 1970s. Uh, a number of storylines that you've developed over the years have inspired controversy and caused some newspapers to pull them or pull the strip altogether or move it onto the editorial page. 
Uh, what storyline would you say was the most controversial, the one that really seemed to cause the biggest tempest for you? Wow, it's 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 hard to uh, select one. There was a storyline where where Joni, after her failed uh, uh, run at Andy, became involved with a reporter named Rick Redfern, a reporter for the Washington Post, who was covering the campaign that she was running. And uh, at the end of that campaign, they have a fateful night together. And I wanted to show that. I wanted to show that their relationship, uh, which had been at a professional distance up until then, had, had taken a different turn. And, but I, I wanted to do in a way that, that seemed lyrical and, and almost sweet because I figured that was the best way I could get it into a family newspaper. And so I, I show the phone in the, on a Monday strip. I show a phone ringing in Joni's bedroom and the, her bed is made. And so she's obviously not at home. And over the, the rest of the week, I, I created um, a, a long traveling shot that went out her window the, across town over hill, over dale, until it, it starts uh, – we start going in the window of Rick's room and through the curtains and, and there the two of them are in bed. Now, that took place over five days. So there was, there was this rolling mystery uh, for readers who had no idea where this was – maybe some of them did, but, but uh, most of them didn't. So it presented editors with a very difficult problem. If, if, if I had shown them in bed on Monday, they simply would say, OK, we, we're not going to put up with that and they would have just tossed it out. But because there were four, four strips that had absolutely nothing objectionable in them – in fact, there were just pictures, pretty pictures – it was very hard for them to edit those out. So – Come the end of the week, where the reveal is, they were they were in a real uh, pickle if they had decided they were going to drop that strip because by then all their readers had had gotten very vested in what was going to happen and the outcome of this mystery, so that made a, a lot of them very angry because it put them between a rock and a hard place. If they did run it, they were going to hear from their readers that um, uh, really didn't think that that sex had any place in the comics page. And if they didn't run it, they were going to have all the you know they were going to hear from all these disappointed readers. One editor, just out of his mind, just dropped the actual picture and ran the day's weather in that final panel, just figuring that you know maybe anarchy was the way to go. I don't know, you know, just make it a total mystery. But, but others did drop it, and then they they of course heard from heard from their readers big time. I mean, I wasn't being subversive in the way it sort of sounds the way I've just described it. I don't usually like to alienate editors. They, after all, they are the clients, and I would prefer that they run everything I do. But when you're in hundreds of newspapers, you cannot have the, the, the arrogance to, to assume that, it, that everything you do is going to make it into all those papers. Each, each editor is, is uh, presiding over his, over his own community standards, and uh, those are going to be different from town to town. Uh, you've also uh, you've provoked some other famous figures as well over the years, including Frank Sinatra and the Bush family, and, and uh, Hunter S. Thompson, the writer that you uh, mentioned a little while ago, uh, who was on record as being rather unhappy over your depiction of him as Uncle Duke, who's a character often noted for uh, his rather deranged behavior. I believe Thompson said something to the effect of, "If I ever meet him, I'll rip his lungs out." Which you then had the Uncle Duke character say that. I, I remember a couple times in the strip. What role does the Uncle Duke character play in the strip? When do you find yourself most often turning to him for a storyline? Well, he's a very extreme character, and and he's the only character who started out as a straight-ahead parody that I was, in effect, bringing Hunter S. Thompson to the comics pages. And he knew it, and I knew it, and everybody knew it. And, and, and you know, I mean, it was, it was as, as straightforward as a Mad Magazine parody. 
he had turned himself into a public figure uh, as a consequence of, of, of his Fear and Loathing books. And uh, so he was fair game in that sense. He was, he was a public figure. I actually find him the least interesting character to write for. I do use him to create extreme situations. But the reason he's not so interesting to write for is that he has no ambiguity. There's no ambivalence in his personality. He, uh, when he makes a decision about anything, it's very binary. He, he asks, is this in my best interest or isn't it? And that's the only thing that feeds into that decision-making. And so the, in, in, in that sense, he's limited. All the other characters agonize over things, or at least there are other factors that they take into account in deciding whether to, to do something or not. With Duke, it's always self-interest. And um, that gets old for me. And I think with that character, it's, it, uh, it's uh, less is more. I try to use him sparingly. Interestingly enough, I put him into the a, into a, a current storyline where he is the voice of reason. And, and this is, is, is unusual after all these years to, to finally have Duke be the I – mean, Duke, Duke actually does have a pretty good take on what is in his self-interest and in the interests of his clients. His client, who is the president of Berserkistan – and I can't pronounce his name because nobody can. It's a, it's a long series of consonants. His, his client is a madman and, and, and doesn't know what – what is in his own interest. So, so Duke has to be his guide. So, so there's been this role reversal where, where Duke has become uh, the president's honey. He's become the person who tries to keep him from killing himself. Doonesbury has what's often been described as a Dickensian cast of characters that's, that's grown considerably over the strip's history. And a lot of the characters have gained dimensions uh, over time. They've grown from being kind of one or two-dimensional characters and becoming three-dimensional characters. At, at what time did you realize that the strip might likely uh, continue for a long time and that you could keep kind of expanding the dimensions of these characters and that you could reference past characters and events as part of the storyline? Yeah, I try not to do that, overdo that because you you can't assume you, you can't make any assumptions about about when people joined the strip um or how long they've been away from it if they're rejoining it. So I I try to reset up characters uh when I'm going to do that, but I think that about 10 years into it and it's one of the reasons a small reason, but one of the reasons I took a sabbatical was that is that for half the characters Half the characters were frozen in time. They were living on on Walden Commune at this at this mythical uh, campus, and uh, they were frozen. and And I found that pretty limiting. So one of the things I did uh, during that time off was reset the strip and throw them throw them into the in, into real time, where they joined the other characters uh, who lived outside the campus, like hunter thompson character and and lacey davenport and, and and many others so moving them forward in real time allowed me then for them to have children and there for be a second wave and third wave of, of of characters as the years have unfurled and so the strip is i've managed to kind of keep the strip the the animating principle of the strip the, the same as 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 in the beginning years which is it watching a generation come of age so the younger characters like alex like toggle have become really the new Mikes and Marks and BDs, that they they uh, now sort of drive the strip forward because they are in the act of becoming. And that's just inherently more interesting than, than watching people who are become set in their ways and who become more or less predictable. 
You've brought along another piece of music that uh, is certainly a kind of character-driven song. I think the Beatles' Eleanor Rigby. Why did you pick this particular piece of music? Well, you just put your finger on it. It is character-driven. It's a wonderful portrait of loneliness and isolation. And this wasn't usually the Provence of of pop music uh, at at that time. Um, most, Most songs were love songs of one kind or another. And the Beatles went outside that envelope and started creating art music. And I, I believe I, I read once that McCartney had been listening to Vivaldi around the time that he wrote Eleanor, Eleanor Rigby. And I think that helped create a, a, a kind of musical context for this portrait of, of the kinds of people that McCartney must have seen in Liverpool in post-war England who were locked into despair with no social mobility and very little hope of, of improving their lot in life. He seems to have been the empathetic Beatle. He, he wrote songs about, about outriders and outsiders and lonely people. He wrote um, Fool on the Hill and, and um, Nowhere Man. And, and then later in his solo career, um, it's, it's just another day. He seemed to be fascinated by quotidian life the life of, of, of everyday people. And he would describe it over and over again. Penny Lane, again, a portrait of just a barbershop and ordinary people running in and out of it. In Eleanor Rigby, he found, he found the, the, the poignancy and the despair of, of, of people. And what made it even more poignant was that a, a little story crept into that song uh, late in its, in its creation. I can't remember which of the Beatles suggested it, but at the end of the song, um, the the priest buries Eleanor Rigby, and you see that you, what's been described for you are two lonely lives. And then what's set up, of course, is this incredible whispering, what if? What if these two lonely people had only found each other? They might not have lived those lives. up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door who is it for all the lonely people where do they all come from all the lonely people where do they all belong Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near, look at him working, darning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. We've been listening to the Beatles performing Eleanor Rigby, a piece of music brought along today by our guest, Gary Trudeau, the creator of Doonesbury. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Gary, you and your wife, uh, television anchor Jane Pauley, have three children. What sort of impact did raising a family have on Doonesbury? Well, not much directly. I mean, I have colleagues who 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 mine their family life uh, for 
you know, things that their kids say or do. Um, I didn't consciously do much of that. It did, however, probably make me much more available to writing about raising families. And, and I mean, obviously, it was on my mind a lot. And so to some degree, obviously, it, it informed the, 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 the families that appeared in the strip. But I tried to create a bit of a firewall between um, my family and the, and the strip. And it helped that none of them were much interested in it. <laughs> All three of our children have, have shown a remarkable lack of curiosity about uh, the, the careers of either parent, and that's fine. That's to be desired. We were absolutely thrilled with that, <laughs> that, they, that they all seemed to be finding their own way and, 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 and following other paths. Uh, and they didn't seem to labor too terribly in the shadow of public careers that their, that their parents, parents had. It didn't uh, – you know, maybe it will all come tumbling out in therapy later. Um, but at the moment, they certainly don't seem to have grown up with that sort of uh, resentment or burden. So, so far, so good. You're just mom and dad yeah, to them, yeah, right? Yeah, right. You're a baby boomer. You were born in 1948, and you've been quoted as saying, and you were responding to a question, uh, that baby boomers are at their awfulest when they are discussing themselves and at their most admirable when they refrain. I try to be admirable. <laughs> at, the, at the risk of asking you to be less than admirable, what do you think has been the most significant long-lasting impact of your generation? Well, I mean, if we can stay on parenting, uh, the, the tale hasn't been fully told yet, and it will be studied and, and is being studied. But I do think that, that just on that one domain alone, there's been a significant impact. We grew up at a time when, when fathers were off stage. They, they, were, they were, you know, working long hours. Um, they were at a remote uh, I, I'm obviously generalizing, but families were uh, – obviously, they stayed intact longer in those days. There were fewer divorces. But the people within that family unit weren't necessarily close. And uh, I think that, that, that the hippies, as they came – as they aged out and decided they would have families, pushed against that idea of, of a family life and resolved to be very, very close to their, to their children. I, I think some of us went a little overboard. We decided that we would be par- we would be friends more than we would be parents, and certainly we dressed alike. We listened to a lot of the same music. We used a lot of the same vernacular. There was this uh, uh, deep allegiance that my generation felt to the idea of being young. So, so we didn't feel that we had to create that that adult distance that our parents did, and to be role models in quite that way. So. The good news is that is that families have probably never been closer. The bad news is is the same, and that you know whether we instilled enough self reliance and, and and resilience in our kids is 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 an open question. I think we were all pretty involved in in solving problems and in micromanaging their lives as they were growing up, and um, I think we've produced a lot of loving kids. But but uh, at the same token, I don't know if we've necessarily prepared them for the rigor. Uh, that they're going to be facing, particularly in, in, this, in this, this economy. You're characterized uh, often as a satirist, which people tend to think of as somebody who's biting and sharp-edged in their approach. Uh, but I've always been struck by what I think is this ultimately gentle, very benevolent humanity and compassion that informs so much of your work. What do you think shaped you that way as a person? Well, I think we originally started talking about that, that, that being an outsider early in life, there's, there's really no substitute uh, for that and, 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 and having some appreciation of, you know, life happens to everybody. And in some, it happens to some of us earlier than others. Um, I, I've seen it in, in, in my three kids. They've, they represent quite a spectrum. But sooner or later, life happens to everybody, that you do get beat up. 
And um, I, I, I think that to, to, to create characters and not focus on their humanity would be a huge mistake. And it certainly would make people less vested in the strip. I think if you, if you just have the, the purely cold um, eye of a, of a satirist who simply says, well, there's a foible and there's another one, um, without creating a sense of hope, without creating a sense of grace. I don't think people will become attached to that work. I think that, you know, what, what my antecedent was, was, was in, 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 in public uh, rapid response satire, if you will, satire that, was hap- you know, that, that happened quickly, was uh, the late-night comedians. And what I noticed about them was that they had nothing vested, that there was no point of view. It was whatever the joke they thought they joke they could get. Well, I think there's, that's the difference between a humorist and a satirist. A satirist does have a point of view, does think that, that something of value should be left, left standing after you, uh, you, after you do your worst, and that basically, at the end of the day, you may want to see these people taken down a notch, but you, you want them to remain standing. You want them, their, their essential humanity honored. You know, based on your work in Doonesbury over the years, people have often uh, characterized you as as a liberal politically. But how would you describe your political outlook? Because my sense of it is it might be a little more complex and nuanced than a lot of people might think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that that happens as as you age is that is that exactly that one hopes anyway is that your 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 views do become more nuanced and complex and I you know I prefer to take it uh, issue by issue on on education and on certain cultural issues I'm probably a lot more conservative than people might imagine on um, uh, social justice I'm probably as liberal as I ever was so uh, it's it's a real it's a real package and I think that's one of the reasons that that uh, Clinton appealed to a lot of us in the 90s was that he seemed to be somebody who re-engaged on every subject. And yeah, once he became president, the political realities often shaped him doing things that's, that were pretty expedient. But, but in general, he was willing to revisit all his most cherished beliefs and reinterpret them in terms of what was possible, things that worked, things that didn't work. He got out of that liberal box and, and took a lot of us uh, with him. I think uh, Gore did it on in a number of other issues. Those are leaders who say, okay, yeah, this is the the orthodoxy of of where I began, but let's let's take another look at it. And you know, Obama has been forced to do the same thing. And uh, the people that don't, the people that simply flip flip on uh, MSNBC or Fox just to reaffirm and to harden their views, are missing the boat. I think, and and aren't contributing to the public conversation in any meaningful way. In, in 40, a Doonesbury retrospective, uh, you describe yourself as having a raging ambivalence about what kind of people we are meant to be. What, can you elaborate a bit on that? I think that, that that's sort of endemic in the, in the American character is that, is that we do reinvent ourselves over and over again. And you'll hear the language of reinvention when people talk about Americans. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll see it over 200 years. That, and, and yet there is that was it Martin Luther King who talked about that long bending arc of progress? We ultimately seem to be headed generally in the right direction, and even though we there's a lot of stutter stepping and, and we go back and forth, and that that generally speaking, we move in a more progressive, inclusive direction. That more and more of American citizens have been folded in to the opportunity that the society uh, represents. And that, and that we will always keep moving in that direction, I hope. Uh, there are times like now where, you, where it seems impossible. We are, we are in one of those big swings of 
of inequality right now. And that has to get straightened out before we can move forward again. But, you know, we did it after the Gilded Age. We did it after the Depression. I'm, I'm, I'm confident we'll do it again today. I don't know whether Occupy Wall Street and its, and its thousands of um, versions of it around the world are, are going to be, you know, the means by which we do it. But I do think they represent a, a pulse that's going through uh, capitalist democracies that is going to demand change, that we're looking at the existing model and saying uh, there is too much crony capitalism, that we're all turning into all these various societies that have become oligarchies and, and we're all becoming Russia. And that can't be good. That's not good for capitalism. You've been writing this strip now for more than 40 years, and though you did take a sabbatical and you're now able to take vacations from time to time, you're, you're still expected to produce a great deal of creative and engaging and humorous work at a very high level on a weekly basis. How do you sustain your inspiration for doing that? Well, let's not understate the, the role of vacations. After um, Calvin and Hobbes and, and The Far Side went out of uh, syndication in the mid-90s within a year of one another, I got a call from my syndicate. All three of us were syndicated by Universal Press Syndicate. And I got a call from my editor and he said, so this is not good that, that we're burning people out. And even though it is the industry standard and it is tradition, uh, comic strips have always been kind of public utilities that they, there's something fresh every day of the, of the year. We don't think that's necessarily good for our creators and for the long haul. And so uh, since that time, I've, I've had vacation weeks. And uh, when I brought that news home, there was, there was a, a great celebration because I'd always worked around family life, worked around vacations, worked around you know, that it was always there. And, and, and now I have those periods of time where I can kind of refresh myself. But um, I don't know. I'm, I, I guess because my strip is uh, bounce, you know, I bounce, bounce my characters off the real world and the real world is always changing. So as long as I remain curious about the world, uh, I, don't, I don't lack for things to write about and, and, and for ideas. If you look at someone like Gary Larson who did Farsight, every morning he was staring at a, at a white piece of paper, no characters, no topicality, no storylines, just a kind of point of view. And um, I can see how he'd get burned out. You've talked in recent years about the intertwined ongoing struggles of daily comic strips and newspapers in the, in the age of the Internet. If you were launching Doonesbury all over again today, starting the whole thing anew, uh, in what sort of media format would you choose to present it? I, I think I'd get together enough of them and then I'd go out to California and try to persuade somebody to turn it into animation. I don't I, – I, I really wouldn't choose print media. It's fine for someone like myself who's established and if I complain, nobody's, nobody's going to listen because I'm still in hundreds of papers and – and and do fine, uh, but the my colleagues on the web can't make a living at it. They all have other jobs. There's maybe one or two exceptions, but but most of them are are part timers. Um, so when people uh, ask how to break into the the industry now, I I, I pretty much steer them away just because I don't think there I don't think there is a, an economic model at the moment. Um, maybe someone will come up with one. You know, I tried it early. 2000. Uh, we created a, a 3D model of Duke and uh, uh, did real-time animation on the web, but the economics just 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 didn't make it sustainable. So uh, yeah, I, I, I you know I think the people that are that are good writers and good artists should be moving towards animation because uh, there seems to be an insatiable appetite for it in a variety of platforms. What are a couple of your favorite satirists today working in any medium? 
One of them is is um, not in my medium is is Randy Newman, and I, I've always thought he was the premier satirist of our times, and he um, he achieves his effects by this very raw truth telling. I mean, it's in, it's embedded in the titles of some of his songs, like "Short People" and. Uh, I just want everyone to like me, and and one of the songs I I, I brought along is I is uh, I want you to hurt like I do. Um, that's not a funny song by any stretch of the imagination, but it's outrageous that the character in the song tells his young son as he's leaving the family, as he's abandoning the family, that he's communicating his pain, that he wants to to roll it forward into another generation, and that's of course how dysfunctional families uh, um, you know perpetuate themselves. And then he, in the, in, the, in the next verse, expands that to the entire world. He wants the entire world to feel his pain. And, you know, it gets it, it gets at the tribalism in the world and it gets, it, it gets to how uh, uh, grievance perpetuates itself. And it's, it's a very profound um, way of looking at it. And um, to do it sort of un- seemingly unironically when, of course, he is being I- ironic. He creates that tension in all his songs. And um, uh, God bless him. I, I, I think he's the best. I ran out on my children. Randy Newman doing I Want You to Hurt Like I Do. Uh, Gary, how long do you think you're going to keep at it? How long do you think you're going to keep doing Doonesbury? Is there any sort of marker in your mind, chronological or creative or otherwise? No, I think the markers, you know, there have been variety of markers through my life where I say, well, I'll just make it for a few more years or I'll just and, – and, and, and at the moment, suddenly 50 sounds like a, a, a nice round number. I can't say. I, I don't know how – you know, whether, whether uh, the decision will be taken out of my hands that, that I won't be able to support myself doing it. On the other hand, it, it, newspapers have, have done okay in the last year or two. So I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit more optimistic that maybe I'll have – you know, I'll have a few more – uh, years at this thing. There's certainly other things that I, you know, would be happy to explore. Uh, if I had to stop now, I've I've had such a you know a long, rich run. Uh, I certainly wouldn't have any grounds for a complaint. What do you hope people will say about Gary Trudeau a hundred years from now? Well, I'd be shocked if anyone was saying anything about Gary Trudeau a uh, hundred years from now. Um, so uh, I, I don't think it's useful in life to to, uh, to to think in those terms. I mean, you you hope that when you pass on, that uh, the people that knew you or that read your work uh, said, "Well, you know, he entertained me, or he made me think," uh, and then your family that uh, that you were good to them, that you were kind to them. I I think if you, to think any larger than that, to think any bigger in terms of legacy, is 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 not a good way to live. Gary, thank you so much for being with us today. This is David Brent Johnson for Profiles. Thanks for listening.
The program you just heard was recorded in November of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.